Okay. All right. Well, we're in Luke chapter 3. Thank you so much for joining us online. And today we, we see where Luke brings us back to this, this extraordinary character known as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Luke chapter 3. I just want to read verses 2, 3, and 18, and then we'll pray and we'll get into it together. So it was during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas that the word of God came to John, the, uh, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 18. And with many exhortation, he preached good news to the people. And Father, we pray again that you would help us to receive this good news of repentance. Lord, as we look at John the Baptist and his brief ministry, Lord, may the powerful impact it had on Judea and all around Jerusalem be the same powerful impact it has on our hearts this morning. For we pray it in Jesus' name, everyone agrees, says, Amen. All right. Now, when we talk about repentance, sometimes we see repentance as kind of a feeling, like, I feel really bad about myself or about my sin. And when we reduce repentance to that, we actually completely miss the mark of why this little word repent was so important both to John the Baptist and his ministry as we'll see today, but also as we'll see in coming weeks to Jesus. That this, this message, this call to repent or turn, this was crucially important to God and his uh, to God for his people. Now, what we want to talk about today is this idea that repentance is more than just a turning away from. It's also a turning to God. In fact, one of the things that I think we, a good way for us to, 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 to understand repentance is to recognize that repentance is a change. It's a change in allegiance that we are, are, are turning from our natural, sinful self-allegiance and turning to a right allegiance with our Creator and Redeemer, God. Now, John the Baptist's ministry, his, his preaching was just a brief but radically important way that we understand what God means in calling us to repent. So I want to give you three main things today. I want to talk about how repentance is always necessary. I want to talk about how repentance is a lot bigger than religion. And I want to talk about how repentance is us turning to God's chosen king. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to try with all my heart to pronounce these names correctly. Here we go. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip being tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lucanius, tetrarch of uh, Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, we already know this about John, don't we, from earlier studies in Luke. We already know that John had a supernatural birth, not in the same way that Jesus did, but in the sense that his parents were older, righteous people. His father, uh, Zechariah, was a priest in the temple, and they were barren, waiting to have children, and God, in their old age, probably past the age of childbearing, supernaturally allowed her to conceive, and that, that son that was conceived was John, who is, we're talking about today. 
so that his ministry was set up, announced by the angel Gabriel, in preparation for what God would do through his chosen king, Jesus. And in that, it's interesting, in listing all these different names, these, these leaders of his day, both political leaders and religious leaders, Luke's wanting to draw our attention to something. Yes, he's wanting us to, he is writing, as we've said before, in a historical context. And if you have a good study Bible, you can read about who these different leaders were and their relationship to each other and the accuracy of Luke's account. But I believe Luke's uh, motivation was bigger than that. Luke's motivation was to remind the reader of when John the baptizer came calling people to repentance. He came specifically under a time of broken political leadership. That John starts his ministry in wanting to prepare people to turn to Jesus during a time when people were going, who do we look to? Who do we trust? Now, it's interesting because one of the mistakes that, that they were making in the first century is the same mistake that we make now. We tend to do two wrong things. One, we tend to often view that the cause of our world's problems is politicians. Or the other thing we tend to do is say the cure to our world's problems is politicians. And neither of those things are true. Now you're going, come on, John. Are you trying to say politicians aren't part of the problem? No, they are part of the problem, just like you and I are part of the problem. The problem is our own brokenness. And what's really interesting about this is Luke is setting this up to, for us to see that, listen, that in this time of political brokenness, this time of national crisis, in our case we'd say global crisis, the call is to individual repentance. The individual, each of us, turning back to God. Now, he, he says in verse 3, this, this is why or what was the substance of his calling people to a baptism of repentance. He says, he called them to this proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, really quick, when we talk about baptism, the only people at this point, in fact, we don't really know that much for sure, but the, the, the idea, or one of the, the theories is the, that the only people that were baptized up to this point in history were Gentile, non-Jewish converts to Judaism as a picture that they were leaving their old gods behind and coming to, into the God of Israel, to worship the God of Israel. But, but what we have here is we have uh, John calling the nation of Israel to go through that same mode of baptism, that, this, this baptism of repentance. And he says that this is for, and the idea there, it's a requirement for, listen, the forgiveness of sin. Some of your versions say remission of sin. Well, the word that's there for forgiveness is translated forgiveness lots of times in the New Testament, but it's also translated remission. It's also translated deliverance. And it's, a bigger, it's bigger than just uh, a like, okay, God forgives you. Don't worry about that. We just kind of push that sin aside. It's way bigger than that. This, they have the idea of freedom. How do we use the English word remission today? We usually use it about cancer patients that are still free from, uh, from cancer five years on. They're in remission, we say. And so the idea is that we're not just free from the penalty of sin. We definitely are. But we're also free from the power of sin. 
So this idea of repentance is turning away from things that enslaved us and turning to a God that sets us free. This is what he's preaching. This is what John was preaching in with baptism. And verse 4 through 6 tells us where this idea comes from. It comes from the scriptures itself, the Old Testament scripture, Isaiah the prophet. He's actually quoting Isaiah chapter 40, where it says, it's written, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke includes this uh, for, for one of the reasons is, of course, his gospel is about the fact that Jesus is the Savior of all people. But also, what, what we're seeing here is that repentance is always necessary as the biblical means of us preparing for God's kingdom. How, how do we prepare ourselves? How do we get ready to live as those under God's kingdom. It's called repentance. We turn from something, we turn to him. Now this is also really important in this context of their political brokenness and our global brokenness. It's important because, listen, what tends to happen is we tend to, when things are really hard, and let's be honest, things are really hard and they're probably going to be harder before they get easier. When things are really hard, we have this tendency to try to find someone to blame because we hurt and it's got to be somebody else's fault. Now, now here's the reality. People do cause us to suffer. We do feel pain because of the, of the errors of other people. There's no doubt about that. But sometimes in our, in our wanting to find someone to blame, we're also driven to find someone to find relief in that's other than God. Sometimes when we don't want to sort of, we don't want to blame God for our pain. We, we don't want to say God wants us to suffer. That doesn't seem right to us. So it's got to be somebody else's fault. This is why we want to blame politicians. But the reality is, the Bible paints this picture of that we live in a broken world, and sometimes God allows that brokenness to increase in its expression that we might see it and turn back to Him. Because every single one of us is part of that brokenness, both by nature and by choice. I, I wonder, would any of us be comfortable with the idea that maybe God is the one behind this current pandemic. And here's what I mean by that. I don't necessarily believe that we, it, it's, it's healthy for us to say God's caused this pandemic. In, in any other way that we'd say God's caused all this. But we have to at least be honest the fact that God in his sovereignty has allowed this. And maybe he's allowing this so that we would be exposed as those who are always looking for someone to blame and always looking for a false place to find refuge instead of wanting to turn to him. Now, I, I know our times are tough, and I really don't want to belittle that or lessen that. I know that we're suffering in ways that are just heavy. But so were the people that Luke's writing to. They were oppressed by a Roman government. 
the religious leaders were compromised with that governance. They were wondering, this has got to be the time that God steps in and does something. And when God begins to step in and do something, you know what God does? He says, you as an individual need to repent. You have to turn back to me. Now, let's, let's respond to this, okay? This is going to be hard, but I want you to think about this. Who do you tend to blame for your suffering? Do you blame politicians? Do you blame your parents? Maybe you blame God. Who do you blame for your suffering? I want you to, to just right now, where you're seated, where you're listening, think about that. Try to answer that. And, and also answer this. Where do you go for relief from your suffering? Because listen, that's often telling about where your allegiance lies. Do you go to some sort of physical pleasure? Try to numb it, numb the pain in that. Do you hide in work? I'll, I'll do a bunch of busy work, and if I do all this busy work, then the suffering will go away. If I can just try a little harder, where do you look? Because could it be that God and his great mercy to us is allowing us to go through these difficult times to say, listen, stop looking for a place to blame and come to me and find a place of refuge. See, repentance is always necessary in every season. Our own suffering doesn't take away our need for for repentance, it shows why we need to repent. Now, also, though, repentance, we have to see, is bigger than religion because from the, we, we look at that first part, we might be going, yeah, okay, fine, I'll try harder, I'll do more, I'll, I'll go to church, or I'll listen, I, I'll listen at 10.30 instead of uh, 4 p.m. on Sundays, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll do the right thing, I'll start reading my Bible more, and we start thinking, okay, what I'll do is I'll do all these religious acts and then that'll be repentance, but not necessarily so. So, so John starts his ministry in verse 7, and here's what ha happens. It says, he said to the crowds that came out to him, and we know from the other Gospels that, like, it, it, it says in a hyperbolic way, like, everybody went out to John. I mean, he was the popular YouTube preacher of the day. He was the guy that everyone wanted to hear, right? Everyone goes out there, and here's what John does. Really smart, seeker-friendly guy. Here's what he says. You brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? You brood of vipers. He says, you're a snake, and your mommy and daddy are snakes. And actually, when he says brood of vipers, he's kind of saying, like, your mom and dad are the devil. He's saying, this is where you come from. Now, <laughs> you've not really heard me preach that way very much, because I want people to come back and listen. But John was concerned about getting people prepared to know the God who was wanting to rescue them from their brokenness. Now, one of the things he's, he's doing here, though, is he's also challenging the religiosity of the people. Because this is what we tend to do. We tend to hide in our religion. In fact, it's interesting. One of the things that can happen is because we tried to be religious, I'll be disciplined in my prayers. That'll be enough repentance. I'll be disciplined in my Bible reading. That'll be enough repentance. I'll start tithing. That'll be enough repentance. Because we do these religious things, you know what ends up happening? We're actually blinded to our need to turn to God. Because instead of turning to God, we just do religious stuff. And this is what he's trying to shake them up about. 
In fact, he says this to him in verse 8. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't trust in your relationship to the nation of Israel. Don't trust to your associations. He says, for I tell you, God is able to raise or from these stones to raise up children of, of Abraham. See, this is another indication of religion. Religion is when we are trusting more in our association to God than our relationship with God. Oh, I have an association with God. I go to this church, or I'm a part of this group, or I do these acts, as opposed to I'm a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. And so what happens? He then even says to them in verse 9, man, this dude can be harsh. Verse 9, he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Whoa. See, religion, listen, religion at its core, at its root, is the problem. Because the root of this kind of religion is self-allegiance. If I do enough good things, God owes me. So I'm committed to my works. Now listen, we're not talking about good works being bad. That's another Bible study. Understand what's going on here with the nation of Israel and what Luke wants us to see from it. God wants us to see that what John is saying to these people is, listen, religion is about outward conformity. What I'm talking about is something bigger. Religion, in this context, is this idea that I'm going to conform on the outside and never have to change on the inside. And John is saying in a very harsh way, really, that can't happen. Now, here's the amazing thing. If you and I heard this, what would we say? That guy's a weirdo. He's an idiot. I don't want to listen to that creep. But what do these people do? It says, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? I mean, they're, they're broken. God's doing something here. And he answers them, whoever has two tu tunics to share with him, uh, should share with him who has none, and whoever has food should do likewise. Now, now, we're going to see he addresses three people ask, what, what should we do? And to each of these groups of people, he gives uh, a response. Because what he's trying to show here is that re whereas religion is an outward conformity without an inward change, listen, repentance is, repentance is an inward change that leads to the benefit of others. When God changes us, the first people to benefit are those that were around us. Because how we treat them is different. When it comes to the crowds, he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Turn from your selfishness and turn to generosity. Now, these people that he's talking to in the crowds, most of these people were poorer than any of us have ever experienced. Then he says in verse 12, the tax collectors also came to, to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Now, now, he's definitely saying to them, listen, I want you to turn from your temptation to exploit people because that's often how tax collectors got rich. They were to collect taxes and they were, they were willing, they were a, are also able to collect a bit over for their own income, but often they would just collect more and more and more, give Rome what they want and keep more for themselves. Now, here's what's amazing about this. What's amazing about this is not just that he tells them, you should turn from your, ex, uh, your exploitation to just doing your job honestly, but he says you can still do that job as a tax collector. Because tax collectors, listen, tax collectors were the most reviled people in Israel. 
Because often tax collectors in this area where the, the Israelites were living under Roman occupation were those who were Jewish people, Jewish men working for the Roman government. Here's, a, here's maybe something that will resonate with some of you. It's like a pastor working for Donald Trump. This is what will resonate. This is how people think of it. Like, oh, it's despising. And, and yet John doesn't say, stop working for them. He just says, do it honestly. Stop exploiting. Then soldiers come up. Come on, soldiers, they kill people. He's got to tell them to stop being soldiers, right? No, he says in verse 14, soldiers also ask him, and what shall we do? And he said, then do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. Now, these probably weren't Roman soldiers, to be fair. These probably were local, sort of, you might think of like Jewish police in that area, working for Rome, but more like local police. But still, again, they didn't make very much money, and so what would they do? They would extort money from people, strong arm it out of them. So, so, does, so does John the baptizer say, stop being soldiers? No, he just says, do it in a way. Turn from ex, uh, extortion and turn to a contented service. The reason this is so important for us, and I think so applicable for us, is that when we're talking about repentance, we're not talking about, okay, everyone stop what you're doing and only fit into this narrow category of life. It's not that. It's really about, listen, it's about, it's about stop living after yourself and turn to God and say, God, save me and help me to esteem others as better than myself. This is what he's calling people to do. Now listen, this is how the Apostle Paul even describes our very salvation. Listen to this when he's talking about the Thessalonians and how they've uh, been converted to faith in Jesus. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, For they themselves report concerning all kinds of reception, uh, or, I'm sorry, the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And notice, and wait for the son, his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath of come, wrath to come. Can you see also how that prepares us for the kingdom? The kingdom comes with the king, doesn't it? So the kingdom was inaugurated when Jesus came uh, for the first time. The, Jesus will, the kingdom will come in its completeness when Jesus comes the second time. Do you see how repentance fits into this? How our turning from false gods, false places of refuge, sinful practices and turning to God means that we are, okay, God, I'm, I'm ready. I'm looking for you. I'm longing for your return. And while I'm waiting, I want to treat people like you treated them. That's repentance. This is normal Christianity, folks. This is what it looks like. Again, let's respond to this. Chance to respond to this. I want to ask you a question. Think about this. Where are you substituting Religion for repentance. Let me give you an example uh, in my life, uh, where and I'm still bearing, I'm still learning to bear fruit. I, I might even be honest and say there's just fruit barely beginning to bud in this area of my life. For years, I thought uh, I'm a good steward of my income as long as I tithe and don't have credit card debt. And those are two really good principles. Don't get me wrong. But I said, that's, that's it. And so really, I had a mindset. In fact, 
to be fair, sometimes I was discipled this way or taught this way. As long as I tithe, first 10% goes to God, and I don't get into debt, which is also good practice, then whatever else I have with whatever money I have left over, I can do whatever I want with it. It's all for me. In fact, I used to hear it said and preached many times. God says, uh, you know, it's all my money, and I'll let you keep 90%. This oversimplistic view of finances. And you go, come on, John, why are you bringing up money? Well, I'm not bringing up money so you give to the church, just to be clear about that. I'm bringing up money because this is the area that John the baptizer deals with God's people about. Do you realize all three of these areas are all about finances? Did you notice that? The crowds, be generous with your material possessions, right? The tax collectors, uh, uh, stop trying to uh, exploit people for money and do honest work. The soldiers, stop trying to extort people for money and be contented, have contented spirits. So where, where are you substituting religion for repentance in your life? Maybe it is finances, maybe it's something else. Here, here's one of the things that happens a lot. I've been in ministry for 30 years. A lot of that was with younger people, single people just beginning to date or what have you. And here's what I've noticed a lot. I've noticed a lot of people, and this, I'll be honest, it's not just younger people. I've noticed some older people doing this where they're involved in sexual immorality. They're, they're involved in sex outside of marriage. And here's how they justify it. Well, I'll serve at church. You know, no, I, it is a struggle for us, and we're trying to be good. But you know, as long as I serve at church, then I'm okay. That is substituting religion for repentance. Do you understand? Let me ask you this question. Is, the, is your hope in the return of Jesus or in the improvement of self? Oh, I want things to be better, so I'll just try to be really hard to be better. We turn to Jesus, as we'll see in a minute, because he is our hope. And when he comes back, then things will be completed. Let me give you uh, just a, maybe a practical thing to do. This week, why don't you contact a trusted Christian friend and have an honest conversation about your sin? Something we just rarely do. And I don't just kind of just go to the, yeah, you know, I'm really guilty of, I just don't pray as I should. That sounds so holy when we confess that sin, doesn't it? I don't pray as I should. Hmm, only three hours this morning. I should try harder. Sounds so holy. No, I'm talking about deal with your junk, not because your friend can save you or you can save your friend, but go to God together. Repent together. It can be your spouse. It can be a good mate. It can be an older brother or sister that you have a lot of respect for or you trust with something, that kind of confidence. But confess it. The Bible says in James 5.16, confess your sins one to another. And pray for one another. Why? Because the, the, the prayers of a righteous man or woman avail much. There's something powerful when we say, to, we go to God together and say, God, this is where I'm at. I, I need your forgiveness. I need your strength. I need your restoration. God honors that. Now, the last bit. So repentance is always necessary, and repentance is definitely bigger than religion. But here's the big thing, and this is the thing we don't get about repentance, okay? This is why repentance is so hopeful. Repentance is about us turning toward God's chosen king. Because in this context, what happens, right? He, he, after he gives these exhortations, what happens? Verse 15 says, as the people were in expectation. They're thinking, man, this guy is a powerful preacher. God's using this guy in a radical way. Just for the record, too, John did no miracles. Zero. But, but he's preaching something. He's not afraid to go right for the jugular and tell people, this is it's time to do business with God. And so they're thinking, and they're all questioning, it says in verse 15, they all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. That is, he might be God's chosen king. Could this be the dude? And so what happens? John answers them all by saying this. Notice, I baptize you with water, 
but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And there's a lot there that we could spend lots of time on, but we're going to make this clear, okay? When, when John says, I am not the Christ, I'm not God's chosen king, but the one who is God's chosen king is coming, and then here's what he's going to do. All the things he's describing there are works of purification. Now, there, there, there are some who would say that the separation of, of wheat and chaff there is talking about the fact that Jesus separates those who are real believers and not believers, that he's the judge of that. He is the judge of that. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, didn't we? But I believe in this context, he's talking about the work of God's Holy Spirit among his people through the person and work of Jesus. Because he says what's going to happen is Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then he talks about fire being an unquenchable fire. See, this idea of a winnowing fan, this was a tool that was used to separate chaff from wheat. Wheat kernels being what you want to eat, but they're covered in this chaff, this kind of crusty bit that's not good to eat. And so after they would harvest the wheat, they'd have it in a place where uh, uh, the wind would blow near it, and they'd get this winnowing fan and chuck it in the air, and the dry bits of the chaff would fall off, kind of fall away a, a couple of feet away, and the kernel of wheat would fall to the ground. They'd just keep doing it over and over again until all the bad bit fell off, and that bit was burned away. We sang today, didn't we, about the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes within us, because we put our faith in Jesus, when the Holy Spirit begins to work, when He begins to work in us, what happens? We become holy. He purifies us. He does this work. Now, we're going to talk a whole lot more about the Holy Spirit as we go through the Gospel of Luke. But I don't want you to miss that there's this emphasis here of the Holy Spirit doing a purifying work in us. The Holy Spirit leads us to repentance. He convicts us of our sin and of, our, and of God's judgment and of the righteousness that we can only have in Christ. He does this. He purifies us. But then he also says this. It says this, that with many exhortations, John preached the good news, which is interesting, isn't it? That there's this good news about Christ coming and purifying us. This good news about us needing to turn in repentance. This is part of the good news. As he does this, what happens? He calls out one of these corrupt politicians, Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved, it says in verse 19, uh, by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evils that he had done. In other words, uh, you guys probably know some of this story, right? Herod had divorced his first wife, married his brother Philip's wife in a really, in a really uh, bogus way, and that was one of the things that he got called out for by John the Baptist, and when you call a politician's personal sin, hmm, that doesn't always go down too well. So what happened? John the Baptist was locked up in prison. Now Luke doesn't get into his full story like the other Gospels, but it's important for us to remember that John the Baptist, while he's in prison, he begins to doubt a little bit. He sends some of his disciples to, to Jesus. Jesus says, hey, go back and tell them about all the stuff you see going on. How I'm, I'm, I'm giving sight to the blind, and the deaf can hear, and the lame can walk, and the poor hear the Gospel preached to them. And don't be unbelieving. And so he goes back and encourages John the Baptist. And what happens to John the Baptist? He gets out of prison and he gets this really big house and a really nice carriage and he lives happily ever after. No. He gets beheaded. He gets beheaded in jail. This is what happens to John the Baptist. 
Why am I bringing this up? Because when we're talking about turning to, the, to, to God's chosen team, we're not just talking about the one who purifies us perfectly, but listen, we're talking about the one who's worthy to suffer for. If, listen, if our blessing in following Jesus is just this life, then John the Baptist got ripped off. Because his life was basically uh, born with all this high expectation, goes out to the desert to just seek after God, is there for many years, maybe a decade, and then finally hears from God and has this super short ministry where he points past himself to Jesus, ends up going to jail, struggling with, gosh, should I do the right thing, then has to believe while he gets his head chopped off because some lustful king decided he liked the way his daughter-in-law danced and she asked for his head. You couldn't make this stuff up. Why would he go through that? Because he believed that Jesus was worth suffering for. And this is, listen, this is what's amazing about John the Baptist. He didn't even know all that the Messiah was going to do. He didn't rec probably recognize that Jesus was going to have to suffer and die. But he recognized that God had promised his chosen king and that Jesus was the one. Then he says in verse 21 and 22, listen, and when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had been, ba had, had been baptized also, and was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And this is, this, again, there's so much amazing stuff here that we could talk about. But just a couple quick things. Notice he was baptized. If it's a baptism of repentance, why would a sinless person be baptized? Jesus does this to, to identify with us. That's why he does this. But also notice, when he's baptized, when he fulfills all righteousness, as it says in Matthew's gospel, when he does this, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon him. Jesus' ministry is done in the power of the Spirit. This should give us confidence that what he calls us to do, his Spirit will give us the power to do it. But also, this is the point I really want to talk about. Listen, that when this happens... Luke, all the Gospels give this account in the sense that the heavens were parted. This testimony, the Father's testimony was, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. In other words, repentance is about us turning to Jesus because he's the one that pleases the Father. And we can know that the Father smiles on us because he smiled on Jesus. Because Jesus didn't please him just at his baptism. Jesus pleased him at his birth, his life, his baptism, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension seals the deal. That's why it's Jesus' righteousness, it's his, what he's done that qualifies us to receive the Holy Spirit, to walk in his power. Repentance teaches us to turn towards the one who pleases the Father, that isn't us in our flesh, but Christ in his, in his humanity. Lastly, we're not going to go through all these names of the genealogy, don't worry. But I want to point out a couple things. One, Luke has a different purpose in his genealogy than Matthew does, because Matthew has a genealogy as well. And if you compare the two, they're different. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details. I, I really encourage you to get a good study Bible. You get a good study Bible, you'll learn about the history of the people that were named uh, in the first part of this chapter, and you'll learn about the differences of genealogies and, and why that probably is. But I want to go straight to the reason Luke gives us a, a different genealogy. He, he says, as Matthew does in verse 31, that Jesus as, is a descendant of David. He's the son of David. In other words, he has a right to inherit the throne. All right? 
He's descended from David as king. But also, notice in verse 34, he's also, of course, then the son of Abraham. He's a descendant of, uh, of, those who, uh, of the father of all those who have faith. He fulfills, listen, Jesus does fulfill the promise made to Abraham that through Abraham's descendants, the whole world be blessed. Jesus fulfills that. And Jesus does fulfill God's promise to David that David would always have someone on the, on the throne of Israel forever. Jesus fulfills that. But Luke does something more than that. He, to, he, he traces it all the way back, look at verse 38, to Jesus being the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, if you're watching this today and you're thinking, you know, uh, this is all interesting ideas, but don't we think Jesus is just a myth? Well, that's not at all how the scripture treats him. And a genealogy isn't given to show that you descend from a myth. Those of you who think Adam and Eve aren't a real person, it's just an idea. So Jesus descended from an idea? No, that's not what the scripture shows. But the point here is, is that Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews, He's the Savior of all humanity. He's the representation of all humanity. This is what the Bible teaches. In the same way, listen, that Adam, the first Adam, way back there, Adam and Eve, was, was we in a sense, were all in Adam's loins, you might say. Every single one of us, doesn't matter what our background is, our race, our creed, doesn't make a difference. He's the fir- he and Eve are first humans. We all descend from him, and we've all inherited his sinful nature and then chosen to sin. But what, what God does in sending Jesus is he sends the last Adam, the final Adam. And what Jesus does as the new beginning of the new humanity, where Adam fails, he succeeds. Jesus succeeds. And the whole thing of repentance is to turn us back to Jesus and say, Lord, I want to stop trusting in myself and I want to trust in you alone. My allegiance is to you, Jesus. So here's how I want to close our time together. Here's how I want us to maybe respond. Not necessarily a confessing of our sins. As I said, do that this week. Find a trusted brother or sister you can do that with this week. But as a chance for us to confess our faith. To confess simply means to say the same thing as. When you confess, you agree with God. God, I, I, I say what you say. That's what it means to confess. And so I have three statements that I want us to say out loud together. I want us to confess. If you believe this, if you believe this, say this. If this is what you believe in your heart as you're sitting at home watching this, say this with us. Confess this. Let's confess this together. You'll notice after each statement there's says C and gives a, a, a scripture reference. You can look up those references later. We're not going to say those references. But look them up because these are almost, these are basically those scriptures put into a confession. So let's confess these things together, right? Follow with me as I, as I read these things. We believe God is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. If you believe it, confess it. Second one. We believe that since we died with Christ, we will also live with Christ. And since we endure suffering with Christ, we will also reign with Christ. If you believe it, confess it. 
lasting. We believe that by Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners, so that by Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. If you're one of those many, and you believe it, confess it. Repentance isn't just turning from. It's turning to. It's turning to the hope and the expectation that we have in good because of Jesus. Let's not just confess our sin. Let's confess the goodness that the Lord's brought to us. Amen? And Father, I, I pray, Lord, you would help us to do this, to walk in these things, to believe these things. And Father, I pray that you might bring in each of us as individuals a revival. Lord, we, do, we would love to see a national revival, but Lord, we don't know that that's going to happen, but we know that we can be revived again according to your word. We can turn to you. We can say no to our self-allegiance and say, Lord, you're our Lord. Father, you're our Father. We thank you for sending us the good king in Jesus. And we want to follow him and look for his coming. Lord, help us to do this. Help us to walk in this. We pray it in Jesus' name.